0: Well, welcome, everyone. Today is May 3rd, 2023. And it's a pretty exciting day. Well, a lot has, you know, occurred in regards to foreign policy and a lot going on domestic. Now, I have to apologize that yesterday I didn't have a show. I didn't have anyone around me to talk me down to try to load two virtual machines on a hard drive that was not solid slate. So um, (laughs) I ended up being knee-deep in parts. And, 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 and that was good because sometimes you have to let a few things percolate. Uh, there has been a, a lot going on. And, and it's, it's time for a little bit of salt to be dropped. World Press Freedom Day. And that's the video that I have as a title holder for this show. But World Press World Press Freedom Day is an annual event that's actually observed on May 3rd to celebrate fundamental principles of press freedom, to assess the state of the press freedom worldwide, and to defend the media from attacks on their independence. Now, I want you guys to understand that this was, um, you know, established by the United Nations Assembly in 1993, and while. The title and, you know, the things that are coming through in respects to that, you know, it kind of tells you that that's where all this EIP start stuff began. The disinformation, misinformation, the new information center, disinformation center. But I think I should get a little bit naked and kind of explain to you how disinformation isn't always about misinformation. It's about directing the attention of people to information. And I'll walk you through that before we get into the nitty-gritty of the coronation. And, well, obviously, as you saw, Erdogan's been maimed, really. And I'm going to do a whole show on the Russia-Turkey thing tomorrow. But press freedom, huh? It was established in 1993 because it was recommended by UNESCO's General Conference. And May 3rd was actually picked, get this, to commemorate the Windhock Declaration. It was a statement of press freedom principles agreed upon, get this, by African journalists. So World Press Freedom Day aims to promote, allegedly, and protect, allegedly, the free flow of information and ideas across national borders. and to raise awareness of the importance of a free and independent press for democracy, human rights, and development. As we can see, the people that actually created it and the people pandering to it are the ones that are doing everything that its words on paper, when declared, are. It's completely opposite. Now, World for, uh, World Press Freedom Day you know, has its oranges. Oh, oranges. oh my God, it's oranges! I can't even speak today. I'm a little bit distracted, and and that's just me, because you know, all of us as we're working, sometimes you know, in our personal sphere, I have a lot going on right now. You know, Hera's getting married. Got a lot of things going on, <laughs> so I apologize if I misspeak, but has its origins, as I said in the Hawk Declaration, that had to do with an independent and pluralistic African press. Now the date of its establishment and discussion, 1991, is key. That is where the West turned its eyes to Africa to dominate them, to take a foothold. This is where we had the new pipeline deals done with Iran. This is where, you know, Gaddafi was rubbing people the wrong way. This is where they pushed into that area. Now, the Hawk Declaration called for the establishment of independent and free press in Africa. Did you ever see that? We don't even have a free press in our nation. Do you believe that the African continent is abiding by it? They tell you everything they do under the guise of good intentions and things, if they're telling you we're here to save you, it's the opposite. They create the chaos. They create the problem so they can give you their solution. May 3rd. And Julian Assange is still a prisoner. We need to remember that because he should have been at the top of the list of discussion. Now let's talk about disinformation for a second because people use the word disinformation and misinformation interchangeably, which is wrong. Misinformation is erroneous information. Disinformation is annotating and, annotating and highlighting actual information to focus on or annotating and highlighting false information to focus on. Disinformation can be a potent weapon in a war, especially when the targets are human beings. (laughs) The target is actually your mind. Why? Because it can manipulate public opinion, sow confusion, and undermine the enemy's ability to make informed decisions. So, disinformation involves the spread of deliberately false or misleading information with the intention of deceiving or manipulating people. Now, how do you counter that? By using factual information to draw attention so that the enemy cannot make informed decisions. In the context of war, disinformation is a very valuable tool. It can be used in several ways. For example, A belligerent nation may spread false information to its own citizens or to the enemy's population to shape public opinion and gain a psychological advantage. It can also be used to create confusion and uncertainty about the enemy's intentions, capabilities, and activities. It's a bilateral thing, I guess. You could observe it as that. Disinformation, though, can also be used to influence the enemy's decision-making process by spreading actual information as false information to its own citizens or to the enemy's population to shape the public opinion and gain a psychological advantage. It is used to influence the enemy's decision-making processes This can lead to the enemy making incorrect assumptions or taking actions based on flawed information, weakening their position, and giving the disinformation user an advantage. Not only that, disinformation can be used to demoralize and disorient enemy troops by spreading rumors, by telling them how the story ends so they rush to fix it. The morale of their troops, their people, or their state of affairs, supplies, and equipment is suddenly in jeopardy. It is a powerful tool in war because it can manipulate opinions, influence, decision-making, and sow confusion and discord among the enemy's forces, all without the need for physical force bloodless war. Now entertainment can be a powerful tool to educate the population and confuse the enemy at a time of war. During wartime, the government and military leaders often use a variety of media as you saw and enjoy the show, including film, music, art, pundits, to convey messages and shape public opinion. Entertainment is a very effective mean to convey messages because it can capture the attention and emotions of the audience, making the message more memorable and impactful. For example, during World War II, the US government produced a series of animated cartoons featuring popular characters like Bugs Bunny and Donald Duck to promote patriotic themes and encourage support for the war effort. At the same time though, entertainment can also be used to confuse the enemy by providing misleading information. For example, during World War II, the British government created a fake military unit complete with fake tanks And artillery to deceive German intelligence about the location of Allied troops now at the same time while using it as a weapon to confuse your enemy we must understand that entertainment is an extremely powerful tool because in wartime it can be used to educate influence and confuse the enemy while engaging and entertaining the population. However, it's important to note that the use of entertainment for propaganda, well, raises a lot of ethical questions and concerns about the manipulation of public opinion for the potential for misinformation. See? Disinformation, misinformation. You must have Disinformation to yield misinformation. Disinformation is pretty much, hey, don't look over there, look over here. And that's important. Because could you imagine if there were political commentators used as really big weapons to confuse the enemy, especially if it came from their ranks? In the context of modern warfare, where the battlefield has expanded to include media and cyberspace, Political commentators, influencers, opinion leaders can have a significant influence on public opinion. And they can shape the narrative surrounding a conflict. So, in wartime contexts, as we know throughout history, political pundits, news agencies, opiners, well, Let's pretend we're at war and you have a political commentator who's sympathetic to one side, maybe, I don't know, that the side of the people. Well, that person can be used to spread factual, misdirecting information to confuse the enemy or to influence their decision-making. Like, why would you go and try to assassinate Putin so quickly when Erdogan's not down yet? Oops, someone's rushing. It could also be used to distract the enemy by raising irrelevant issues and diverting attention from critical matters that are being taken care of. It's almost as if you use the truth, but tell them to look here rather than there where you're busy taking care of stuff. It is important to note that the use of political commentators, pundits, bloggers, and opinion leaders for propaganda and the purposes for for propaganda is obviously an ethical issue when the target is the public. And it increases the potential for misinformation. However, using a commentator to intentionally direct focus and confuse the enemy could indeed Be very successful now one thing I would have to say and many disagreed in the past with me educating the public is one of the biggest weapons to take out an enemy nation or an enemy infiltrating a nation because by educating the populace it increases awareness and vigilance among the population making it more difficult for the enemy to operate undetected. You know, the world is watching, and education can help make the public recognize and report suspicious activities or behavior, making it very hard for an enemy to blend in and avoid detection. In addition, education can help the public understand the nature of the threat posed by the enemy infiltrator and the steps that can be taken to protect themselves and their communities. Also, we all know this, but education can foster a sense of national unity and purpose, which can help to identify, encounter enemy propaganda and misinformation and misdirection. By educating the public on the values of history and culture of their nation, they can be better equipped to recognize the attempts of an enemy to manipulate or undermine these values and to resist such efforts. And it makes it way harder for the enemy infiltrator to operate successfully because by increasing the awareness and vigilance among the population and the population themselves. Enhancing their security measures, either domestic within their home or their community and fostering a sense of national unity and purpose is a force to be reckoned with. Now, I had touched upon NARA in my article where there is a lot of factual information and warnings in there, but also points out how it was done. But the National Archives and Record Administration has a significant role in what we like to call America 250 Commemoration. They put a whole thing out years ago. The America 250 Commemoration is is as the nation's official record keeper, NARA's at the head of that. NARA is responsible for preserving and making accessible the records of the United States government including the original Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, which is housed at the National Archives Building in Washington, D.C. Now, if this was my game plan, I would totally use NARA to misdirect and disinform the enemy. See, as part of America 250 commemoration, NARA is planning a range of activities and programs to engage the public and showcase its holding. They're planning to include exhibits, educational programs, public lectures, and online resources that highlight the significance of the documents and artifacts in NARA's collections and their importance to the nation's history and identity. NARA is also working with other federal agencies, state and local governments, and private organizations, and contractors to coordinate the America 250 commemoration and to ensure that it reflects the diversity and richness of American history and culture through its participation in the commemoration. NARA, which by the way, the IG of NARA has really broad powers. It's quite fascinating. Because if it was my game, That would be my entry point. Because NARA aims, what? To promote public awareness and appreciation of the nation's heritage and to inspire future generations to uphold the principles of our nation and freedom that underpin the American experience. Now, the announcement of the America 250 was actually put out by NERA before the 10th Archivist kind of did his job, but didn't. Or maybe did. I like games. You like games? Now, America 250, as we know, is a term that's used to refer to the United States of America's 250th anniversary, which will occur in 2026. The anniversary will mark 250 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, which declared the American colonies independent from Great Britain and laid out the foundation of the United States of America. The America 250 commemoration is a national effort to recognize and celebrate. The anniversary with events and activities planned across the country. The commemoration will provide an opportunity to reflect on the nation's history and founding principles, as well as its achievements and challenges over the past 250 years. It will serve as a platform to envision a future of the United States and renew its commitment to the ideals of freedom and equality. Nothing can stop what's coming. America 250 is coming, and that's being World Press Freedom Day is incredible. As I said, Nara has got insane broad, the IG, broad rights and powers over various agencies and people. So having said that, I'm going to take a musical interlude so we can shift some gears and talk coronation. So please enjoy this quick few minute interlude cause you know, spy fall, pretty awesome, like a gangster. that's my personal playlist. I should actually make that public, but I'm kind of selfish, so I don't want to. Uh, Now, let's move it along. Let's start with what the heck is going on in Africa? And that has to do with the coronation of the King of England. Now, a while ago, two years ago, there was a conversation that I'd like you to listen to on Good Morning Britain. And it is something that I believed should have happened too, which is Charles should have not become king and it should have been William first. And I say this with love, of course, because what's about to happen with... Charles is not going to be very nice for many nations the United Kingdom is trying to throw their weight around and I believe that this would be a segue for their utter destruction and I'm happy to watch the train wreck I know a lot of people are too remember they dominated in this is spy fall, or I should say, Rome is
1: falling. Here we go. Prince Charles, celebrating his 72nd birthday on Saturday, and that makes him the longest serving heir to the British throne. My goodness, he's seen his fair share of royal family drama. Now, including his tumultuous marriage to Princess Diana, which is going to be played out in the Netflix Crown version of it, at least, in the new season.
2: Yeah, it starts this weekend. After the Queen announced plans to celebrate her platinum jubilee in 2022, some commentators are wondering whether, due to his age, the Prince should step aside and just let William succeed the throne
1: when the time comes. Historical consultant on The Crown and royal biographer Robert Lacey joins us. Now, is this season going to be a bumpy view for Prince Charles? Because previous seasons of The Crown, I think, have done him justice, Mm. because they've really explained a lot of things to do with, I guess, what he had to experience growing up and the way the life was for him, which maybe explained certain elements of his personality, as we perceive from the outside.
3: Well, we made a great effort. Um, And I'm only the historical consultant um, in a huge team um, on the crown. I must make that clear. But we made
0: a huge effort. Now, let me just pause here for a second. I want you to understand why it's very important that you pay attention to what I'm telling you, because this has to do with Sudan, too. I'm going to teach you some real history so you can understand how this game of risk is played. An educated populace is a force to be reckoned with
3: to understand prince charles where he was coming from with a view to what you've just been talking about um ben the fact that um, he w- we right from the beginning it was likely that he would spend a long time in waiting um, and so it has proved but now season four which starts this weekend yes it starts really the most difficult years in the royal family's modern life. The 1980s, the beginning of the marriage to to Diana, the breakdown of that marriage, the role in it of Camilla, whom we've already met in season three. Mm -hmm. Um, And in any marriage breakdown, things get pretty ugly, I'm
2: afraid. It's it's been talked about before, hasn't it, Robert, that um, Prince Charles should step aside and let William take over. Does the Queen's announcements about the Platinum Jubilee and the fact that she's going to continue, does that sort of just underline the idea that, that maybe the right thing to do would be for William to pick up when the Queen eventually uh, wants to sort of step down? Or is it the thing that Prince Charles has been waiting his entire life for? So regardless of how old he is, he should get that role.
3: Well, um the queen's jubilee um for which we're all going to get two bank holidays um in 2022 certainly shows that the queen is determined to go on um to i think what one of you said earlier was the bitter end um uh let's not hope it will be bitter but i mean there is such loyalty and respect for the queen when we look to the future and say well who can duplicate that in the future could it really be king charles iii and queen camilla or would it not much, much, much better be um, William and Kate who, who are already the focus of enormous popularity and are, are clearly stepping into the role of, 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 of future sovereign. Having said that, we just saw this week, there are the pictures of it, Prince Charles, um, no, that's William we're looking at there, sorry. Mm. But we also saw previously Prince Charles laying a wreath on his mother's behalf. There's more and more. That um, Prince Charles is is stepping into the role of the Queen this weekend. For example, um, he's going to Berlin um, to to for the very first time to represent the British state and monarchy at a German commemoration of the war dead. Now that's just the sort of building of bridges that Prince Charles um, uh, is good at. I myself don't think that he would willingly step down from the destiny he's waited for so long.
1: Well, the Daily Express says, Queen's vowed to keep serving her country. Uh, this is revelations from AIDS, apparently, uh, that they feature on their front page. Uh, do you think, think there's that, an but, element uh, in her decision and the announcement of, of that Platinum Jubilee, uh, which seems the idea of those celebrations in the current climate we have seems so extraordinary, but also so needed. Do you think there's perhaps an idea that the Queen needs to be a stabilising force that we don't want change right now of of any sort.
3: Absolutely, and with due respect to the Daily Express, I don't think it's much of a revelation that the Queen is dedicated to serving her country. Um, The Jubilee um, reinforces that. Yes, there were question marks, um, but the fact that um, the government is obviously making use of it in its own way too this is a political use of the royal family to give us something to look forward to in the future but why not that we have two poles in our british constitutional system we have the government that we elect who make mistakes, and then we have the royal family, on the other hand, who've always been there. Some people say we shouldn't have the hereditary principle, but we do. They represent history, they represent tradition, they represent the values that um, we all agree upon. Um, And it is enormously reassuring to see the Queen representing us at occasions like this. Here she is, for example, the first time we've seen her in a face mask because she was going into Westminster Abbey to lay her wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Um, The 100th anniversary of that um, first uh, initiated by her grandfather, wasn't it? Um, King George V. Well, look, we're going to leave it there,
2: but it's great to get your thoughts on this, Robert, particularly on the, on the sort of the advent of the new series of The Crown, which we know you're our historical advisor. It's going to be a fascinating watch, that one. It's uh, a
1: luxurious watch, isn't it? I think we're all ready for it. But, and, we but also... as you say, I think the last
2: few series have been a real insight for... Mm. I was born in the 70s. Kate was born in about the 50s. But an idea of uh, the, what some me. of the children that we've grown up, watching them grow up, and they're now grown-ups, uh, with Prince Charles and the, and the, the children of the Queen, yeah. actually had to go through, which we didn't understand and we didn't no. really appreciate. Well, we, didn't,
1: we hadn't even really heard of Camilla.
0: No one wants to hear about Camilla, right? Nobody wants to hear about Camilla. But I'm going to tell you, the coronation of King Charles is sealing the fate of the power of the crown. And I say this with uh, no grains of salt. See... To understand why Sudan is happening now, and to understand everything, we should actually take a look at one of my favorite shows, Geography Now. I would like for you guys to get to know this nation, because you're going to understand how the crown falling with the coronation brings it all home, you know, because it was really interesting that it was announced that Sudan is going to cease fire during the coronation. You'd be like, why did the Sudanese care about ceasing fire for the coronation of another nation's king? Think about that as you watch Geography Now.
4: First it was the Congo... All right, here we are, our last set of twin countries. First it was the Congos, then it was the Koreas, we did the Caribbean Saint Triplets, and finally the Sudans. So much of Africa's backstory is rooted in Sudan, and today, much of that story is being written here. Welcome to the real country of the Nile. It's time to learn geography. Now. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Barbs. Get a Geography Now t-shirt at geographynow.com. It's not selling out if it's your brand. So Sudan, in the words of Geography Abdim Abdi Mohammed on Twitter, it is the bridge between Africa and the Arab world. And uh, speaking of Geography Peeps, as you know, I love having guest hosts from the countries that we cover. And today's host is going to be Eruba. How are you doing? Say hi. Hi,
5: everyone. By
4: the way, uh, this is a really cool shirt. And you're wearing a really cool shirt. I wearing... sure am. Oh. I wonder who made them. Oh. Who made these? Oh. I Aruba.
5: did. And I also made the shirt that he was wearing in the Somali episode and the South Africa episode and then you'll see them in all of the remaining African.
4: Check it. We got Tunisia, Zambia. I will be wearing these in the future episodes.
5: And if you want one, you can get one at unityshirtsshop.com.
4: Support her business.
5: Thank you. All right.
4: Well, Ruba, before we start, what do you want everybody to know about Sudan?
5: Sudan is... Extremely diverse. Um, you'll always find somebody fighting over the bill, um, which means that they always want to pay.
4: Koreans do that too. We yeah, do that all the time. All the time. It's, it's the polite
5: fight. Really, it's the polite fight. And by the way, this is the Sudanese stove. So this is my cousin mathani it's this one piece of long cloth that you just wrap around yourself. So just give us a little spin. Show mm-hmm. us. For men, they wear the Jalabiyeh, and they also wear like daimma, which is like um, it's like this piece of cloth that they tie around their um, head. So it's just this one piece of long cloth. You know, go to the souk, which is the market, you know, grab some milk or leban. And yeah, I mean, I just love my people and I love my country. You're
4: going to have a lot to say in this episode, I, clearly. Yeah, I am, yeah. So let's just kind of jump into it right now. <laughs>
5: So historically, the word Sudan had been used to reference a wide range of geographic locations. Yeah,
4: it was used to refer to the Sahel region, it was used for Mali, for French Sudan, it was used for Anglo-Egyptian Sudan back when it was one big thing, and you guys used to be the biggest country in Africa. We used
5: to be the biggest country in Africa before um, South Sudan.
4: 2011. That's a whole other
5: thing. That is a whole other thing. But
4: uh, let's jump into the animation and explain a little bit more. First of all, the country is located in Northeast Africa, surrounded by seven other countries, and a coast about 400 miles, 650 kilometers long on the Red Sea. To this day they have two disputed areas, one unclaimed area, and one condominium. To explain, up here is the Halaib Triangle. Due to a historical cartographic dispute, both Egypt and Sudan claim it. However, today the area and towns inside are de facto administered by Egypt. This dispute also includes Bir Tawil, the upside-down trapezoid-shaped plot of desert that both sides claims should belong to the other, effectively making it a terra nullius or unclaimed land. In any case, down south you have the Kafia Kingi salient that to this day is is still disputed, even though it was technically set to be given to South Sudan. Today, Sudan controls most of it, although South Sudan forces have been known to step in occasionally as well. And finally, you have Abyeh, which is an area under joint control of both Sudan and South Sudan, as it was agreed upon by the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, or Naivasha Agreement, signed in 2005 after the Second Civil War. The capital of the country is Khartoum, where the Blue and White Nile Rivers meet. Here you can also find the largest and busiest airport, Khartoum International. After Khartoum, Nyala is the second largest city outside side of the General Khartoum metro area, and coming in at number three is Port Sudan on the coast, and as it sits on the Red Sea, they have the country's largest shipping port, and the second and only other international port, Port Sudan International. From there, the country is divided into 18 states or Wilaya. Now if you look at a population density map, you'll notice the majority of people are concentrated in a kind of crescent shape, curving from the bottom west part of the country up to the upper right following the Nile. This is because the upper left quadrant of the country is almost entirely uninhabited as it lies on the harsh Libyan desert. With that in mind, most roads and train lines also follow the path of habitation. The trains go all the way from Nyala, the capital of South Darfur, down to South Sudan, hooking up to Khartoum and connecting all the way up to the Red Sea and Egypt at Wadi Halfa. Finally, this little island right here, Suakin Island, on the Red Sea coast has historical coral buildings and ruins as well as a 99-year lease for Turkey as of January
5: 2018. So Bir Tawil means the long well. That's literally what it means.
4: It's all desert there.
5: Though. I don't get it, but that's, that's just a translation, <laughs> I didn't name the place. <laughs> yeah, so the whole Egypt thing is
6: kind of funny, it's kind of like... Hey, so according to the post 1899
7: boundaries, we are supposed to be split at the 22nd parallel, so I'll take the triangle.
8: Oh, no, 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 no. According to 1902, there was an administrative boundary zone because it was under the governor of Sudan. The triangle is ours. to Wheel is yours though.
9: The
6: triangle was intended for grazing for the Ababda tribe and particularly under Egyptian administration. So we cut at the 22nd parallel. That means Bir Tawil is yours.
8: No, 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 it's, is- it's, it's yours. You, you should just take I it. No no, like, no, no, I insist. It's fine. You like, should take it. You-
5: yeah, so basically, whoever claims Bir Tawil agrees to giving up the triangle, that's how the game is played, so.
4: Yeah, so, yeah. Now, with Sudan, you have to know one crucial region and one demonstrably notable area, Nubia and the kingdom of Kush.
5: Kush being where the Kushitic languages are derived from, Um, like we explained in the Somalia episode, or like he explained in the Somali episode.
4: Basically, the Nubian region was concentrated in the loop of the Nile, specifically the city of Napata, today known as Karima.
5: So around 1500 BC, Egypt was like,
4: Gotcha! But then 800 years later, it was like, Gotcha!
5: That's right. For about a hundred years, Nubia evolved into a kingdom of Kush and took over Egypt in the 8th century BC.
4: And they had pharaohs that ruled Egypt?
5: Yeah, so the ancient Nubians played a deep role in developing much of what is modern-day Sudan.
4: So the Nubians, they had their own writing system, irrigation technology, kilns, mirrors, tweezers, sun clocks, reservoirs, trigonometry-based architecture. They had a lot going on.
5: In the meantime...
4: Ruba, why don't you go over some of the top notable places of Sudan?
5: Okay, so there are the ancient temple of al-Musawarat al-Safra. Um, Sukin so Islands ruins, Karama ruins, the Temple of Omen, National Museum, uh, Dungala the Elderly Mosque, which is the second oldest mosque in Africa, Sukkina Arabi in Khartoum, um, University of Khartoum, and Shari' Anil, which is a Street also in Khartoum.
4: But Ruba, what do you think would be probably the number one notable site of Sudan that a lot of people should know about?
5: The most famous site are the Pyramids of Marawi. Sudan has, and I think you've mentioned this before, mm-hmm. a lot more pyramids than Egypt.
4: They have over 250 pyramids. Egypt only has about 118. Yeah. But Egypt has three really big cool ones.
5: That's that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> they can they can have that. The thing is our pyramids are just a lot smaller.
4: Yeah, so many cool spots, but some of the most frequently visited spots are also the nature zones, which brings
3: us to <laughs>
5: Despite having a little over half of my country covered in desert, Sudan still holds the nickname of the food basket of the Arab world, um, and it covers about 45% of arable land in all Arab countries. It's
4: interesting how Egypt may get most of the credit for the Nile, but actually most of the Nile is in Sudan. Well, let's explain a little bit more. In a nutshell, the country is located just at the convergence of the Sahara and Sahel regions of Africa, which is where the arid savannas begin and eventually make way for tropical greenery further south you go. And all of it centered around the longest river of the nation, let alone the whole world, the Nile River. The country's north section is divided between the Libyan Desert to the west of the Nile and the Nubian Desert to the east. The majority of the people living along the Nile are only able to venture about 3 kilometers parallel to the river before the land becomes uninhabitable. The only main exception would be the capital Khartoum, which sits at the convergence of the White and Blue Nile Rivers, which originate down south in Lake Victoria and Ethiopia's highlands. Keep in mind though, there is actually a third important branch, the Atbara River, sometimes called the Black Nile, that starts in Ethiopia as well. From there, The western front known as the Darfur region has the Mara mountain chain Which holds the tallest mountain Mount Deriba an extinct volcano with two saline lakes at the top of the caldera in terms of inland bodies of water Though most of Sudan's lakes are blocked up dam reservoirs the largest being Lake Nasser, shared with Egypt But the largest fully in Sudan being the Meroe reservoir Otherwise most of Sudan's remaining inland water bodies are scattered wetlands called the Sud in the very south of the country Near the border with South Sudan this area with the Moro hills is the greenest part of the country in fact wetlands mostly of this Sud area cover about 10% of Sudan's land and about 4% of their land are forests and finally 80% of the population depends on groundwater and much of it comes from the Nubian sandstone aquifer the world's largest known fossil water aquifer system shared with Egypt and Libya it is estimated to hold about 150,000 cubic kilometers of groundwater and it plays a role in providing some of the most remote oases with water in Sudan oh well, fun fact you guys have a season well I'll explain about it, like a sandstorm season
5: Habub, yeah
4: you said it was kind of fun though you've been through them
5: yeah but it's like you're literally outside you can't really see anything it's also it's nice when you're inside because it's like it's very like soothing
4: it's kind of like snow
5: yeah except it just doesn't melt yeah so
4: now sudan's economy and industry are heavily centered around natural resources
5: about 80 percent of the country is employed in the agricultural sector and in the late 90s they started exporting crude oil
4: yeah after south sudan gained independence they you guys kind of lost like what two-thirds of your oil reserves
5: yeah we said goodbye oh boy
4: (laughs) also fun fact at nearly a million tons annually you guys are the number one producer of sesame seeds
5: i actually didn't know that until <laughs> so thank you sudan also produces 80 percent of the world supply of gum arabic uh, mostly collected from acacia trees in darfur and kordofan i remember actually when i was a child we had a couple of trees around my house and we would just like pick one and eat it but it doesn't like taste... you
4: eat the gum arabic
5: yeah but it, it doesn't taste good it's <laughs> like so it like gets stuck on your teeth
4: because yeah, you guys sometimes have like you use it for like medicinal purposes sometimes or, like, yeah there's a lot
5: of yeah but i'm pretty sure when we were eating it it had nothing to do with that we were just like oh okay
4: and uh in sudan you will find this stuff a lot everywhere. Thank you, by the way, one of our geography people sent this to for, for Fan Friday. Uh, what is bakur?
5: This here is um, sandalwood, sandalwood or sandal, and you just burn it <laughs> and it reminds me of home.
4: It is, it is a really nice, rich fragrance. Yeah. So unfortunately, it is a very slow growing tree and the demand has caused some over-harvesting. This is particularly why sandalwood is one of the most expensive woods in the world.
5: And the one thing you can find in the woods of Sudan are animals. And with
7: that (laughs) A Sudan has loads going on with flora and fauna divided up into five vegetational belts. The desert, the semi-desert, the low and high rainfall savannas, and the inland floodplains in the south. Each of these regions hosts different biospheres for plant and animal species. Many can be found in the largest and most notable area, the Dinda National Park. It's home to nearly 30 large mammal species, like lions, cheetahs, giraffes, elephants, and about 40 species of fish in their rivers and lakes. Lots of birds too, if you like birds. And if you're lucky, you'll spot the national animal, the majestic secretary bird, which can also be seen on the national emblem. Personally, I think it's more of an honor to witness the African civet there. These precious predators are quite unique looking, almost like a mix between a raccoon, leopard, and hyenas. Unfortunately, many of them are caught for their perfume industry for producing the pheromone civetone. So remember guys, be mindful. If you'd like to protect these civets, maybe avoid buying cosmetics and perfumes with civetone. I'm just saying. Peace out, mates!
4: Thank you, Gary Harlow. In any case, that's enough talk about animals. Let's move on to food. Uh, What do we got?
6: Yeah, and so Methani is going to do this. Oh, you ready to talk about food, Methani? Oh, uh, yeah. So starting off with our staples, we have kisra, which is made out of a thin sorghum flour. We have asida, which is also a staple, um, also made out of sorghum or millet. And then we have gorasa. And so with these three, we eat it with mulah, which is a type of stew. Mulah, rijla, bamya, We have kumoni which is my personal fave but it's not everyone's cup of tea because it's made out of intestines. Goat and sheep would be like the most favored types of meat in Sudan. So we have a gache, which is a type of roasted meat with peanuts and quick side story my dad used to cook it out of his van and sell it. Sheta is huge in Sudanese culture um, it's like hot sauce but way hotter and definitely try Sudanese uh, falafel it's this one is like very flat and also a lot crispier and if you see grasshoppers definitely give it a try. <laughs> For drinks Sudanese people are big tea drinkers will drink it with breakfast, lunch, dinner. We have ebre, we have kerkede, it's kind of dried and soaked flour. Just to wrap up our food segment we have the tabak which you can use to cover up food um, to keep it warm and you can also use it for a decoration in your house if you want to hang it up on the wall. Works really well.
4: Thank you Mathani. and with that let's move on to the next part, the best part of the episode, the people of Sudan. You guys ready to talk about the people of Sudan? We sure are. I mean you are the people of Sudan. We are the people
5: of Sudan. (laughs) So Sudan is derived from the Arabic word uh, meaning land of the Blacks, um, Bilad is
4: So when it comes to the people, Sudan is quite a cultural anomaly. How would you guys describe the whole social dynamic of Sudan? What do you think of it? And what does the role of Arab or Arabic mean? I know it's a heavy loaded question, but what do you guys think?
6: Yeah, it's definitely very complicated. So as you said, there's a mix of like Arab and African culture and people kind of tiptoe the line between the two. Because we speak Arabic, because we practice certain religions, um, eat certain foods, people can kind of see the Arab influence for sure. But I think that Sudan has become its own country and earned the right to call itself something totally different. It's a very heavy topic. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to take a lot more than this.
4: And it depends on who you ask. It it
6: heavily
5: depends on who you ask. You know, a lot of people consider Sudan to be an Arab nation. So in in North Africa, the difference is like in Northern African countries, when Arabs migrated, they migrated as families. In Sudan, a lot of the migration was um, from individuals who intermixed with the local population.
4: Ah, so like Arab men that married
5: black Sudanese women and then
4: kind of made families. Yeah, exactly. Ah,
5: You might have a lot of people who are extremely dark, but they might have... Arab, Arab ancestry ancestry, yeah. Or people who are Extremely light But don't have a trace Of Arab in them Oh that's
4: interesting Yeah, yeah. so it's
5: really like You can't really go by The like the phenotype of the, of the person if There are people Who consider themselves To be Arab There are people That consider themselves To be Afro-Arab And you'll see this a lot With the Sudanese diaspora Outside of Sudan And there are people That consider themselves Just to be African Right? Mm. Or African with Arab influence So for me for example If you ask me that question I will say I'm Sudanese I'm African But I'm aware of my Arab influence.
4: It's a unique kind of fusion country, I would say. Would you, would you agree?
5: Yeah, I've heard it being called like the mixed child of Africa.
4: <laughs> the mixed child of yeah, Africa. Definitely. And there's a lot of different types of people in Sudan. It's
5: very diverse. So it's a very complicated question.
4: Well, with that complication, we're going to get into the demographics graph. Boom. First of all, the country has about 47 million people and has somewhere around 600 ethnographic linguistic groups speaking about 70 main languages and dialects. Now, here's where things get kind of tricky. Sudan has a high degree of ethnic fluidity. Many sources might say somewhere around of the country is Sudanese Arab. Keep in mind though, this term is very broad and can refer to a wide range of peoples with completely different physical features that may or may not have ancestral roots actually to Arabs and just consider themselves Arabic speaking people. It's complicated, but say we go off that number, that leaves about 6% of the population belonging to the next biggest group, the Beja people in the east, the Nuba people along the Nile River at about 3% of the country are next, and the Fuhr people of Darfur at about another 3%. The remaining 18% is made up of the rest of the hundreds of ethno-linguistic people groups found within the country.
5: So we use the Sudanese pound as our currency, we also use type C, D, and sometimes F and G plug outlets. Um, and it. Changes depending on the region. That's pretty
4: interesting. Always
5: be prepared.
4: (laughs) And they drive on the right side of the road. Faith-wise, Islam is the predominant religion at about 97% of the population, mostly Sunnis. Now in Sudan, Arabic, specifically Sudanese Arabic, and English are co-official languages, although Arabic is much more clearly widely spoken in the country, right? Yeah. Yeah. English didn't even become official until 2005.
6: Now Arabic uh, obviously came in with the mass migration of Arabs mostly around uh, the 12th century AD. There were long periods of battles against the Nubian Christian medieval kingdoms and intermarriages with the locals so the Arabs took over and sort of Arabized Sudan
5: and then from there the Ottomans Egyptians Ali dynasty and the British eras happens to just a bunch of stuff a lot of stuff happened yeah guys. and then from there there was
4: a time Italy was like
8: oh I want you guys so bad I need to connect Libya and Somalia oh uh, also this uh treasure hunter guy is gonna dynamite some of your pyramids so just that.
5: Now, here's where things get a little bit more complicated. So Sudan has gone through a lot of domestic strife since
6: independence. Um, We've had three revolutions and two civil wars. And that whole situation will be discussed in the South Sudan episode. So stay tuned.
4: Stay (laughs) And in addition, you had the whole Darfur crisis. You're from there. I'll let you explain.
5: Okay.
6: (laughs) Like Barb said, we're both from Darfur.
5: We're both from different regions, but nonetheless, the whole state was affected. The conflict is a little bit complex, but basically what happened was the Darfur region, the people that lived in Darfur were very suppressed. And so they reached a point where they just couldn't take it anymore. And they were trying to fight back the government decided to fight back using
6: um, the ginger weed. Yeah, to that point, um, around 5 million people were affected. There were 3 million people who were internally displaced, got put in camps and about a million people were killed throughout the crisis. So back in 2009, Omar um, al-Bashir, the um, ex president of Sudan was indicted in the international criminal court. He had two warrants against him if he were to ever leave the country, which is why he stayed in the country. Um, and then currently, um, Sudan is in a transitional state after Omar al-Bashir had been ousted um, and handed over to the ICC for war crimes. So that's a good thing that kind of happened. <laughs> yeah.
5: yeah, we kind of like diluted it a little bit. Yeah, this is the crisis in 30 seconds. Yeah, <laughs> which I don't think does it justice as, at all.
4: I'm glad you guys mentioned that. It's so important because our fourth thing is definitely just, it's a part of Sudan's story. You know, it has to be mentioned.
5: So on to um, a lighter, 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 Topic. So we're gonna move on to sports with
4: art. Yeah, Darfur to the sports.
8: What's up, guys? All right. So as the birthplace of many ancient civilizations, Sudan has a lot of history. And with the history comes a lot of recreational activity. For one, a native sport they're well known for would be nuba-style stick fighting and wrestling, done with nuba people in the south. The goal of the wrestling is to slam your opponent to the ground. There is no pinning or submission. The stick fighting is usually performed at festivals and events, and injuries are very common. Otherwise, they enjoy other sports. Soccer or football is... Why do I do that in every episode? Football is a huge deal, obviously. They hosted the first African Cup of Nations in 1956. They were one of the first two countries from Africa to participate in the World Cup qualifiers in 1970. And their national team, the Desert Hawks, won the African Nationals Cup in 1970 as well. 1970 was a good year. I don't remember it. We weren't born, bro. We are not that... We weren't even thought of in 1970.
4: Nobody thinks of us now
8: anyway. Yeah, we're worthless. As of today, Ismail Ahmed Ismail was the first and the only only Sudanese athlete to win the Olympic medal for the country in 2008. And of course, due to the Arab influence, camel racing is done in certain parts of the country. Guys, that's all I got. So what else do you think we should add into this episode? Because that was not very much. So go buy a mug on geographynow.com. and.
0: So they're one of my favorite channels to watch. And for those of you that homeschool, I highly suggest that you use it. Now, what did you hear in that? You heard about Sudan, and you heard about their geography. You heard about Civitone, which, by the way, I should talk to you about that. So Civitone, as you know, as they mentioned, is an an actual odor that's a byproduct of, get this, the anal glands of exotic civet cats. They're not really felines, but they kind of are. And so basically, it's very pungent. And fecal, but gives, I would say it would elevate. You know how when you cook, right? Oh my gosh, and we're talking about poop and cooking together in the same sentence. I can't believe this, but you'll get it. So, you know how, um, ah, salted caramel. So, when you have a caramel chocolate, you have a nice little chocolate that's milk chocolate and it covers, you know, the caramel. But when you add salt, it elevates the taste of the caramel and the chocolate. Well, this, you know, compound, I would say, that comes from the anal glands of civet cats elevates and annotates radiance and warmth to florals. Now, having said that, sandalwood is exactly the scent that you will find in my home. I have like an oil diffuser, and it has like this really subtle sandalwood. You know, I I inter, you know interchange between frankincense, myrrh, and sandalwood. My favorite. But you know, in 1986, <clears throat> Calvin Klein created a perfume called Obsession. Right? Obsession, man. You know what? That is actually me for the past three days obsessing. Um, you know, when something's new, you obsess. Uh, especially when it's surprising. But obsession, the men's cologne, actually makes tigers frisky because of it. So uh, that's actually a real thing. You should Google it because the secret to Calvin Klein's obsession, the seductiveness in that is literally civetone. The pheromone that they get from the anal glands of the carnivores called civets. And the majority of male colognes have that additive, especially the old school ones. Pretty fascinating. I thought that was a fun fact. And shata, the spice they use, that should come with like a, you know, you should sign a disclosure when you eat. Food, (laughs) Spice Wichita, you know, kind of like you do when you eat nuke-level wings. That's it. Um, But what did you hear? You heard some interesting things. A 99-year lease granted in 2018 to the nation of Turkey. Well, that's because we need to go back in time so you can understand who's really behind South Sudan. And then you will see who the previous administrations were actually serving. So it's important for people to understand, right, that Sudan is a very important nation. As you can see, it was one of the biggest nations on the African continent. Now, Sudan is obviously heavily influenced by Arab culture, particularly in the northern part of the country. Because Sudan has a long history of contact with Arab traders, scholars and travelers, as well as, you know, geographically, it's almost like at the heart at the belly button of uh, the trade routes that link the Arab world with sub-Saharan Africa. And that has increased this strong Arab culture influence in the Sudanese society that we observe today. Now, Arab culture has influenced many aspects of the Sudanese people, including language, religion, the way they dress, their music, their cuisine, you know, and it's actually an official language in Sudan, and the majority of the population is Muslim, and many Sudanese follow tradition Islamic practices and customs. Um most of their dishes are the same but you know Arab dishes and Mediterranean dishes are all the same if you take a look into it. I think the Mediterranean ones um exclude the majority of the spice profiles uh only for heavy dishes. They like more lighter dishes where in the Arab culture the richness of the rose water, the orange blossom for the sweets and um and honeys and spices is is predominant. But it is important to note that Sudan is a very diverse nation being in the heart of Africa and over 51% of it being, you know, desert. Now, when did the Arabs actually start influencing Sudan? Well, that was actually in the 7th century, you know, when Muhammad popped up and sent messengers to the rulers of many kingdoms on the African continent, inviting them to embrace islam so his you know apostles went about and started to spread the word and they actually used jesus who they claim is a prophet as the hook because of everything that was going on so the arab influence in sudan grew stronger during the medieval period particularly during the rise of the Muslim Nubian kingdoms in the northern part of the country. Now, these kingdoms were heavily influenced by Arab and Islamic culture. They established trade and diplomatic relations with neighboring Arab states, which further strengthened the Arab influence in Sudan. Now, in the 19th century and we've talked about this part of history before, Sudan became part of the Ottoman Empire, which had a strong Arab and Islamic you know, uh, cultural influence. The Ottomans introduced new administrative systems and cultural practices to further reinforce this Arabic influence in Sudan. And now, you know, Sudan is kind of like the, I would say is the melting pot of Africa, even though it's predominantly Muslim and surrounded by very staunch Christian nations like the Ethiopians, and they're flanked by pirates and the Egyptians, which have, you know, a strong Muslim and Coptic Christian front, right? Which I would say like the Coptic Christians are the reason it gave birth to more moderate Muslims, you know, like tourist Muslims, the ones that don't go to, you know, they don't go to prayer and they don't eat pork, but, you know, they might have bacon and they fornicate and drink. And I think that actually stemmed out of Egypt. Like, that's my hypothesis. No one's written a paper on it, but they should uh, to understand the dynamics of influence. But anyway, uh, having said that, Why is Sudan such an important African nation? Why is it so important to the continent? Well, first of all, it's the location. Right now, Sudan, because it's missing South Sudan, of course, is the third largest country in Africa and has a strategic location in the Horn of Africa. And it's situated, again, at the belly button of trade, linking North and East Africa, making it very critical and an important transit point for goods and people. You even saw from the video, the railways. They are extremely rich in natural natural resources such as oil, gas, gold, and rare earth minerals. Now, these resources have the potential to drive their economic growth. And one would say when they garnered independence that it would have been fantastic. But as you heard from them too, in the late 90s, when they started exporting, remember what I said, 1991 was a very important year. I said that at the beginning of the show. And I've talked about it before. You know, slot, spotlight, Iran, right? They lost two thirds of their natural resources in exchange for what they like to say independence. It's not, it's called being conquered. And who conquered them? the United Kingdom. They're the ones that inserted themselves in South Sudan and it was our nation that then helped reinforce it. I want you to pay attention. Uh, we know that Sudan uh, is very rich culturally and historically, like talking about kingdom. You know, we should do a show on the ancient kingdoms of Kush and Mero, right? Um, because, you know, and and the history of Khartoum is just incredible. But, Those kingdoms left behind one of the most wealthiest, I think, well, I say, that nation is one of the most wealthiest in regards to archaeological sites and artifacts um, that are still being discovered. But also, Sudan being at the heart of the continent has played a very key role in regional and international politics. Particularly its relation to East and North Africa because of the strategic location, natural resources, and historical and deep-seated ties with its surrounding nations. Now, I, I should mention that there's an importance that I annotate the kingdom of Kush, Because it was an ancient African kingdom that existed, which is now, you know, Sudan and southern Egypt. Um, And the kingdom was strategically located on the Nile River, which provided fertile land, agriculture, transportation. Like it was like, it was popping. Okay. That was the port to be if you wanted to get silk, spices. It was busy. It was like, you know, 42nd Street in New York, 24-7. It was on. But... It was known for not only its trade and commerce because it was a major center of trade connecting, you know, the Mediterranean world to East Africa and the Red Sea, right? It was a key producer of gold and ivory and other valuable commodities that was almost a segue of goods like spices, textiles, you know, they, they were just amazing. Now... Their culture and religion shaped a lot of that. And obviously, it, it, it was influenced, as I said, by the Arab cultures. But the kingdom of Kush uh, was more influenced by Mediterranean. This is why the Sudanese people are very unique. They've embraced the uh, Mediterranean cultures of the traders over time and kind of, you know, Arabified it. <laughs> If that's the thing. Because this kingdom produced architecture like no other. They have more pyramids than, 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 than Egypt. But remember where the pyramids in Egypt were, were theirs too at some point, right? Um, temples, statues, completely untouched. And they have, that kingdom also has a, a staunch legacy. The kingdom of Kush had one of the most significant impacts on history for culture of the region. The influence is still seen in today's civilization that have emerged, including medieval, uh, you know, Nubia and modern day Saddam. But the military power of the kingdom of Kush was one to be reckoned with. Its military strength was insane. And it frequently, and I stress this, frequently was engaged in war with neighboring powers such as the Egyptians and the Romans. The Kushites were very skilled in warfare and developed advanced military tactics and weaponry. Now, history says that the kingdom of Kush was so good that their strategies in war were emulating those and very similar to those of Alexander the Great, who was a successful conqueror because he didn't conquer, he liberated. And this is why we see that subversive tactics of kingdoms such as the crown were used as liberation in exchange for two-thirds of your oil, if you catch my drift. Now, Sudan, as they touched upon, was colonized by various European powers in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Why? Because as we said earlier, it was then when Sudan was actually under... The protection under the banner of the Ottoman Empire, and we know the Western world had the crown at the helm dictating this, and this is how they removed the Ottoman Empire's power. See, it all started with the uh, Muslim inquisitions, you know, in the um, f- from the 15 to even today. In modern history, the Spanish Inquisition is still alive and well because the Ottoman Empire had spread so far that it had captured uh, Eastern Europe and more so the Balkans, because it was a trade port that they used. And so you would see northern parts of Greece obviously being influenced from Turkey, where it was the center of the Ottoman Empire, to Albania, you know, to Yugoslavia, Serbia, Bosnia, all of those places are actually very well preserved, too. If you want to see the history of the actual culture of how, Islam faith was implemented. You, you need not look further than the Balkans. And on top of that, all you have to look at as well to understand the dynamics is to understand that the Ashkenazi Jews are all centered in the Balkans, not on the African continent. That's a show for another time, but that's a real history right there. So in 1885, right, is where it all started. The, the, the head go, because the process, process, and I stress the word process of colonization began in the early 1820s. And that was when Egypt was under the rule of Ali Pasha, right? His name, his full name was Muhammad Ali Pasha. Now, people that are familiar with European and Mediterranean and Middle Eastern history, you know, they know that Ali Pasha was, you know, a, a ruler that endu- enjoyed indulgences. So he was like a womanizer. He, you know, he always wanted comfort. He would stay in silks. Like, like even culturally, I know in a lot of nations, and that includes Greece, you know, they're like, oh, you're sitting there like Ali Pasha, right? And that is kind of like, you know you know he didn't dress himself like for example like there would be someone that would literally put on his clothes I mean they all did that right in all cultures but this is like super indulgence now he was actually quite intelligent uh, very intelligent because under the rule of Ali Pasha um you know European you know There was a conquering of the northern regions of Sudan by them, right? And so, in 1885, there was a modest uh, rebellion that broke out in Sudan. That was massive because it led to a religious leader named Muhammad Ahmad, and the modest forces had like defeated the Egyptian army and established like a air quote independent state, and that lasted up until 1898, when the British, with the help of Egyptian troops defeated the modests and established control over sudan so who is the one that took control of sudan whose idea was for south sudan and i'm going to show you it was the crown and why am i telling you this cuz it's extremely important and i'll show you why and i knew this a couple of days ago but the, you know this morning during conversation with people i it was fully established Take a listen to what CNN is telling you. Wait, let's see.
10: Thanks for joining us. We begin with an agreement in principle to a new ceasefire in Sudan between rival military factions battling for control of the country. Notably, the announcement came from South Sudan, which has been acting as a mediator between both sides. But so far, no public comment from either Sudan's military or the Rapid Support Forces. But under this agreement, a seven-day-long truce will take effect Thursday. Officials from South Sudan also say both sides have agreed to send representatives to peace talks. But where and when those talks will happen is yet to be decided. Six ceasefires so far, at best bringing a lull in the conflict, but the sound of gunfire and explosions continues to be heard, especially in the capital Khartoum. More than 500 people are confirmed dead in more than two weeks of fighting, but with bodies left piling up in the streets, the real death toll is certain to be much higher.
11: The situation in Sudan remains a matter of deep concern as the parties continue their fight. Civilians bear the brunt of this conflict. Critical infrastructure, Hospitals, roads, schools, airports have been destroyed. This war has aggravated the already dire humanitarian situation and shortages of food, water, medicines and other basic goods are becoming extremely acute.
10: More than 100,000 Sudanese refugees have now fled to neighboring countries, according to the UN. Many crossed into Chad before the border with Sudan was closed. Many others are heading to South Sudan.
12: Over 100,000 refugees are estimated to be among those who have now crossed to neighbouring countries, including Sudanese refugees, South Sudanese returning, and other nationalities who were themselves refugees in Sudan.
10: Before escaping Sudan, for thousands of Sudanese and foreign nationals, first they must make a dangerous and often harrowing road trip to Port Sudan on the Red Sea. Once there, for a fortunate few, comes rescue by ship. Saudi Arabia has played a central role in the evacuations, ferrying more than 5,600 people, foreign nationals from Sudan, since the start of the conflict, including dozens of Americans. CNN's Layemdowoo reports now from Jeddah.
11: As the news of the latest ceasefire trickled here into Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, the 15th Saudi-run ship just arrived here with 206 more people, 91 Americans, according to the Saudi Foreign Ministry. The number of nationalities that have so far ferried across from Port Sudan to Jeddah is now 102. Only a tiny percentage of those are Saudis. Many of them are from nationalities from the US and Canada and the UK and Sudan and Kenya, Burkina Faso, from really everywhere um, around the world. So as that ceasefire really struggles to hold, you see the need for so many people still in Port Sudan trying to get across the Red Sea to a semblance of safety here in Saudi Arabia as they figure out where they're going to go next see here uh, I'm just my body here but my heart and my blood and my mind is over there because the situation is really scary you cannot even describe it and uh, you know uh, as example you see dead people we cannot bury them the ceasefire itself still has a couple of options for the two warring generals in Sudan to back out of it they say they've agreed in principle that's a statement according to President Salva Kiir of South Sudan. He was appointed by the regional body, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, to spearhead this negotiation process with the two generals. The others were President Ruto of Kenya and President Gwele of Djibouti. And so, that in principle is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that statement. The other one is that he's urging General Burhan and General Hemeti to send negotiating teams and to agree on where that could be. One of the proposed Venues for this negotiation could be here in Saudi Arabia. Could it be Addis Ababa in Ethiopia or Nairobi in Kenya or Juba, South Sudan? There's just a lot of questions still. We don't know about this seven-day ceasefire that was announced. Larry Medowo, CNN, Jeddah.
0: All right. Let me explain to you the ceasefire. We have the coronation of the King of England. That's why there's a ceasefire. So the coronation is happening. And this is why there's a ceasefire. Now, the British entered the South Sudan part as part of their colonial expansion uh, in Africa in the late 19th and 20th century. At the time, Sudan was ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And I've walked you through the history in episodes because it was important, as you can see, this is where it all happens. This is where the sky falls, right? Because at the time, while they were being ruled by the Ottoman Empire, the West was plotting to see how they can dismantle it because they were called barbarians. And it was the Arab nations that also agreed with that movement because it was kind of like the 300, you know, where they came down and they would just slaughter things and not care. That was how fanaticized. So this is why the Turkish nation has never been embraced as an Arab nation because they're fanatics and Arabs are more tempered. Now, I know a lot of you, Uh, you know, see them with their, you know, Sharia law in some places. That's their business. It's not yours. So what do you care? There's like extreme, there used to be extreme Christian nations too. People evolve at their own pace. People wake up at their own pace. The weaponization though of religion, regardless of what it is, even if it's good, bad, ugly, or evil, right? Because there's a lot of people that are Christian and they're like, you know, we support, you know, know, the Jewish faith, right? And rightfully so. We support the Jews, rightfully so. But then if you actually sat at a temple mass and heard that Christ is, you know, burning in his own excrement on Saturday, you'd be really pissed, right? So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And that is how everyone should be looking at religious geostrategic politics. Now, the British, as I said, initially entered Sudan in the late 19th and early 20th century. It was when they entered in 1820 to assist, get this, they came in, pay attention, to assist the Ottoman Empire in suppressing a rebellion in Northern Sudan, which was happening in Egypt, in the Egypt area. If you remember, what is Erdogan salty about? Egypt, right? That's, he's made it his life mission. Now, the British later became more involved in Sudan again in the 1880s. See, they had gained the trust by saying, yeah, we'll totally come and help you. That's what's up, Ottoman Empire, because they were a threat. So while they came in to help the Ottomans, they infiltrated the Ottoman Empire to figure out the weaknesses in order to dismantle them and, you know, created alliances with the Arab nations that were terrified of the Ottoman Empire because they held a lot of territory, including Mecca, right? So there was a lot of, you know, old school, very deep seated wars in that area of, you know, conquering, you know, that stems back to the Nubian dynasty. Now in 1898, it, well, in 1880, when they entered, they entered and the modest rebellion broke out. Sounds like an Arab spring, doesn't it? And the British saw the opportunity to expand their control over the region. So who controlled South Sudan? Who controlled Darfur? It was the crown. So in 1898, the British, with the help of Egyptian troops, this is how tactful they were, they defeated the modest um, forces and established control over Sudan. So the British had now entered. And what did they do? Exactly what they always do. They divided Sudan into two administrative regions, with the northern being governed by Egypt and the south being governed by the British. Now, the British saw South Sudan as a region with significant potential for resource exploitation, right? Particularly because it was so fertile in land and the potential of agriculture, hence the high exports in many products that we get from them. So they establish a number of infrastructure projects in the region. You know, They come in, oh, we'll help you. We're more advanced than you. We'll just help do this and the mining. Little did they know that they would be blowing up their pyramids, stealing their relics, and gaining dominance. In fact, they also helped by building roads and rail. Sounds like the CCP agenda, doesn't it? Who created the CCP? That's right. So pay attention which facilitated, you know, uh, these infrastructure products, um, projects that they did, facilitated in consumer goods and products uh, being able to be moved around in the sub-Saharan desert and other regions. And that also facilitated the movement of people and bringing in more uh, in to, to amplify the populace. Now, ultimately the British presence in Sudan had a significant impact on the region, including the establishment of a colonial administration, infrastructure and development. And like I said, they have completely dominated the region in respects to exploitation of resources. And that is huge. Now, how does this coronation play come into play? Well, In fact, it's not only the coronation that comes into play and this is why we have the South Sudan thing just going berserk, but this involves the whole lawsuit with the funding and money laundering that happened because lo and behold, you know that money laundering thing with the Haitian musician that was taking money and giving it to Obama and all that stuff? Well, What if I told you that one of those, you know, investment companies that had to do with Malaysia plays into this too? It's all, you have to take the 40,000 foot view. So, South Sudan has significant oil reserves and several multinational and oil companies have operated in the region over years. Now, however, due to ongoing conflict and economic challenges, which I said, it is a crown stronghold, right? Many of the companies that were in the region and, and investing pulled back, allegedly, right? And here are some of the major companies that operate in that region. Listen carefully. ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil is obviously an American multinational oil and gas company. And it inserted itself in South Sudan um, and operated, operated until 2014, Where it suspended its operations in 2014 because of the conflict. Total Energies, that's a French company. It's an oil and gas French company that operated again in Sudan up until 2014. And it suspended its operation again due to the conflict. Because maybe now you'll understand the timing of the escalator. Now, moving along, we have ONGC Videsh. That's India's. State-owned oil and gas corporation, right? And that has been active in Sudan since 2003, and it's still operating today. India, Crown. Now we move to China National Petroleum. Now that's China, China, China. And they've had an oil and gas company that started activity since the early 2000 and still operates multiple oil fields in the country, and it's the largest oil producer in South Sudan. And finally, the cinch so you can understand why South Sudan is popping off, why they're taking their hiatus, and all this lawsuit with Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, testifying. Patronus. Patronus is a Malaysian state-owned oil and gas company that has been active in South Sudan, get this, since 2006. Who in 2006 put together the APC as a one-term senator prior to running for president? Voila. The company operates several oil fields in the country and is still there as a major crude oil producer in South Sudan. Now, the the fun thing that um a lot of people don't know is these companies as you look at that case you will see that they refer to a very specific you know investment company in Malaysia now uh the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund that was being questioned as being the segue to money laundering money to Obama. And Obama, remember, like I just said, assisted in Petronas getting a foothold in Sudan. So that was his payment. Kind of like, you know, how Hunter Biden would cut deals, right? And then he would take a chunk because he cut deals. It's the same. It's the same, totally the same. So basically, they're playing games on the name. Kazana Nasional Berhad is a wealth fund, a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund in Sudan. Now, what is the Kazana Nasional Berhad? Well, like I said, it's a sovereign wealth fund of Malaysia. It was established. Oh, get this! What a weird date, 1993. Mentioned that date at the beginning of the show, too. And it was done to manage the government's investments and promote economic development in their country, Malaysia. The fund is wholly owned by the Malaysian government and it's responsible for managing and investing in a diverse range of assets like public, private equities, you know, the whole nine yards. Now, Kazana is governed by a board of directors that are appointed. the Prime Minister of Malaysia. You know, now in retrospect, let's take a pause here. Malaysian Airlines, that's where they murdered most people, right? If you don't like someone, you're like, yo, I'm going to give you some Malaysian airline credits so you can fly with Malaysian air. It's almost like, you know, planes disappear and stuff. I digress. That, my friends, is definitely two shows that will be coming up this summer. So, let's take a look. So, it's governed by the board of Kasana Nacional Berhad, right? It is governed by a board of directors that the prime minister of Malaysia picks. And, oh, do you remember in Malaysia all that stuff that was going on with the lady on a TikTok that was dancing with a mask and then the military kind of came in and did shit? Can you see things that are happening? It's very important that we use disinformation and misdirection so that people don't see. Because sometimes you'll see atrocities that you don't, you know, that you just can't unsee. But having said that, Kazana has made significant investments in tons of industries and companies. in Malaysia, but abroad too. Like telecoms, like healthcare, like financial services and infrastructure that actual fund has been intertwined and pops up in several high-profile deals, such as the acquisition of the London-based Battersea Power Station development and, get this, the privatization of Malaysian Airlines. Hmm, why would you privatize? Now, as you know... In that case that's going on, Joe Lowe, whose full name is Tak Takjo, is a Malaysian businessman who was implicated in this high-profile corruption scandal involving the Malaysian state government fund, one MDB. He's been accused of stealing funds from the 1MBD fund to finance lavish spending investments around the world, including the United States. But Joe Lowe... Being tied to one MBD MDB, sorry, is one and the same as the Kazanan National Berhad. It's just doing business as one MDB. I hope you're paying attention. Now, Barack Hussein Obama, who was the forty-fourth president of the United States, had a very good relationship with Malaysia while he was in office. It was during his presidency that Obama made efforts to strengthen diplomatic and economic ties between the US and Malaysia and visited the country get this twice in 2014 and 2015 as part of his effort to engage with Southeast Asia in fact under Obama there was a US and Malaysian agreement side it was signed it was like the trade investment framework agreement tifa tifa Pay attention to what I'm telling you. They all pulled out in 2014, the Brits and the Americans. The Malaysians stepped into South Sudan. And this was done through TIFA. TIFA is like NAFTA, but different. It's more of an infiltration thing. It's more of a cover thing. It's more of like, you're doing it and not us, we're out. And it designated... Malaysia is a priority watchlets country in its special 301 report on intellectual property rights. Recognizing Malaysia's effort to improve its intellectual property regime. Oh, and then we had all those Malaysian air flights go. I'm just bringing it back. Now you're going to say, Tori, that's Malaysia. What's that on Sudan? Well, just so you know, this whole kickoff in South Sudan happened. Because of issues at Patronas recently. Now, the crown has full hold of South Sudan. They're the ones that entered South Sudan first. They're the ones that came in and conquered it, and they never left. They colonized South Sudan. The British presence in Sudan has a significant impact on the region. They drive on the right and the legacy of colonialism in Sudan continues up until today. So having said that, their ceasefire is because of the coronation. And I think it's important. Let's see, where is it? Pan-Islamism. It's important that, which part should I put? You know, actually, I want you guys to see the British robes first. We're going to hop to that. I want you to see the British coronation robes, the new ones that they created for this coronation. Symbolism, totally their downfall, for sure.
12: A rehearsal to ensure military precision come coronation day. It will be a chance to play a part in history, taking their place in an 8,000-strong procession Escorting King Charles and Queen Camilla from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey and back again. And with one week to go, details of the service itself have been revealed.
13: The coronation service has elements of tradition in it that date back to the 10th century and before, and it's really beautiful and profound in that respect. But also, it is very much rooted in the present and in the reality of modern Britain, the diversity of Britain, the fact that the Church of England has women bishops, the fact that we are a multi-faith society, and the fact that we're also a society of people with no beliefs.
14: The climax
11: of the ceremony has arrived.
12: 70 years have passed since the Queen was crowned, On May the 6th, it'll be her eldest son's turn to take centre stage on an occasion steeped in centuries of tradition. Tonight, a service was held to mark the arrival of the Stone of Destiny from Edinburgh, an ancient symbol of Scotland's monarchy.
3: It was the item used at the inauguration of Scotland's kings right up until the end of the 13th century. And it was removed by King Edward I in his hope to try and stop that process happening. And it stayed in this chair that he built in Westminster Abbey. And it was used at every coronation right up to Elizabeth II. And then about 25 years ago, it was returned to Scotland and it lives in Edinburgh
7: Castle.
12: Every tiny detail has been considered, down to the smallest stitch of the robes to be worn by the King and Queen, four in all, they include one seen here on the shoulders of Charles's grandfather, George VI, at the coronation of 1937. There's also a new nature-themed robe created for Camilla. Many here have only just returned from overseas, but preparations for the parade have been underway for seven months.
9: It is a complex operation, but we've been able to really, you know, go into the detail, leave no stone unturned, and. Um, and issue some really comprehensive orders.
12: Every element orchestrated and executed to ensure not a single step is out of place. Yeah. So
0: this is why South Sudan and Sudan have decided to cease fire, because the crown is undergoing a coronation. But to understand the broken land of Sudan, I am going to show the introduction of a very good piece. It's like 47 minutes long, so I won't play the whole thing. But it's very, I'm going to go to the beginning and then take you to the end. The introduction. Al Jazeera has done a fantastic, a fantastic job in putting it together. So I I was actually quite impressed when I stumbled upon this, you know, a while back when it came out. This is um, from 12 years ago. So I, I think I saw it maybe over a decade ago. And it was one of my favorite segments to watch because it was so impartially done. You know, it's very hard nowadays to be objective, right? Everyone has cognitive biases and confirmation biases for things. I think this is one of, you know, those pieces where you talk about the dynamics in the now where it's completely objective. So it's called the history of a broken land, Sudan, a history of a broken land. I'm gonna play a bit of it because now you're gonna understand how the coronation plays in when we talk about the British Empire and why Prince William didn't focus on becoming king and the turmoil, they're saying, okay, there's rumors going around. These are totally rumors, right? But they're saying that, you know, the king of England, who's to be coronated, who's the worst thing, because, you know, maybe we might see an Australian independence. No more crown. I don't know. Can the Aussies do it? We'll see, because New Zealand's a problem, but we'll see. But take a listen, because the, the history turmoil that you're going to see here in the beginning is what we're going to see in the oceanic region with Australia in the coming years. <laughs>
14: It's a sad story. Sudan used to be looked at at the land of opportunities, the land of mighty people. The Arab don't respect us. The Arab don't give us our right. The Arab don't give us our dignity. They don't see us as people.
0: I feel very sad. I think uh, we
3: we have arrived to to, to a very dangerous point where, where
14: we should or we have to divide our country. Most of the people are working for separation, that they have to separate from the north. Enough is enough.
3: anthem for a country yet to be born the lyrics and music were created here at Juba University in southern Sudan and tell the story of the ancient kingdom of Kush of struggle martyrdom and of hope for the future As Dean of Music and Arts at the university, Professor Muhammad Ali oversaw the creation of the new anthem. He's a northern-born Arab who has embraced the multiculturalism of the tribal south.
14: We are Arabs, but we have tolerance here, tolerance, have integration with the community. Then, people here are all good. وطيبين باعتبار it is the nature by the way دي طبيعتهم هم كده الناس يعني حتى ما في any sort of discrimination I cannot feel it فكل قبيلة هنا عندها ثقافاتها عندها تقاليدها عندها عاداتها يعني هنا بتجد في المجتمع هنا في مسيحيين في مسلمين، في ناس لا دينيين كمان العالم ده كله هو وطني هو وطني لأنه بهمني فيه الإنسان في المقام الأول ولا بد بيننا كأناس، كبشر نتجاذب أو نتناول كل هذه الأنواع الثقافية
3: but his is a rare viewpoint in what has become an increasing
0: so for those of you watching as you see I stopped at the poster that says in English register to vote insert the crown I want to tidy this up because I want to keep it under two hours I've got so much to do I have a lot of catching up to do so I urge you to see that Now, to understand the British Empire and the conquest of Sudan, it is important that, you know, we understand the dynamics. You should revisit, you know, episodes either that I have or check it out on YouTube if you want to understand the dynamics. Because once you understand what is going on, it's not that unpredictable. And then, while you're understanding what's happening, you can then see what's happening behind the curtain Mm -hmm because the scripts have ended you're just watching them play out now remember the ottoman empire keep that in mind as you watch this intro
9: let's get through this so what actually happened in the campaign to conquer sudan well Initially, there was very slow progress. The British were very cautious in their initial aims. They only made it halfway uh, to Khartoum at Dongla in 1896. And
0: so they were trying- So I'm just gonna interject here and say, remember that earlier in that century, they came in to help the Ottoman Empire. I mean, They need to gain their trust, right?
9: Trying to maintain their supply lines at all times. It wasn't really um, something of high priority to get rid of the Mahdi and conquer Sudan. Now, this all changed with the Battle of Ferkeh, I don't know how to say it, uh, in June 1896. Because what this did is it was the first... Actual intense skirmish between the Mahdists and the British forces, and that led to the acceleration of the campaign. So, the reason why the British so easily defeated the Mahdists was because they had the newest tech, they had light gorge railways for supplies. They had gunboats, and they had the Maxim gun, the first ever automated machine gun. So, at the Battle of Omdurman on the 2nd of September, 1898, pretty much the decisive British victory against the Mahdists, they slaughtered 10,000 of them, but only 47 British soldiers died. So clearly, a decisive victory. Now, what was also significant was the brutality of Kitchener's actions. And what you have to understand is Kitchener's motivation behind this. He was mainly brutal with the Mahdist forces because of his veneration of Gordon, for example, who was killed uh, at the siege of Khartoum in 1885, remember? When the Mahdists broke through the fortifications and wiped out the entire garrison and that failed relief expedition which arrived 2 days late Kitchener was part of that relief expedition so that all contributed towards his brutal actions in this campaign now examples of this is after the victory Kitchener ordered the mahdi's head to be decapitated from his dead corpse and he also did not reissue the order that the wounded be spared in the Battle of Antwerp, uh, before the Battle of Omdurman, he issued an order telling his soldiers to spare the wounded. But in the Battle of Omdurman, he did not do this. What Kitchener also did is he ordered the tomb of the Mahdi to be opened up to prevent pilgrimage. Okay. Now the Fashoda incident. I don't really think it's that important but I'm gonna give you a brief explanation of what it is anyway. Okay, so after the Omdurman victory, uh, Kitchener's forces continued marching down the Nile, and what happened was they met up, or they intersected with um, Marchand's force, the French forces, who were crossing Africa to join their two colonies on the opposite sides of the continent. And so what you had in that incident was a disagreement or conflict with both sides claiming that the area and the upper nile were under their sphere of influence thankfully there was no actual physical confrontation the matter was referred back to london and paris to sort the for, for the politicians to sort out and this actually shows a stark contrast with kitchener's brutality in the battle of omdurman
0: now, what this, this, this um, YouTube video is important for those of you that homeschool or just want to un- have better understanding. You need to understand the conquest of Sudan. But as you heard him say, it was the French and the British that were pulling the strings, the West. And remember, I've always said the one thing about the French intelligence is finance. They're the only ones that hacked, eh, have direct records from Swiss banks. You know, remember Christine Lagarde was heading their financial crime division. So when it comes to following the money, you better make sure it's coming with croissants and Eiffel Towers all up in you. So here's the closing, pan-Islamism, that's key. Take a listen.
9: Now, pan-Islamic nationalism, specifically the Mahdist forces, the Mahdists were becoming an increasingly bigger threat and this can be seen in March 1896 in the Battle of Adwa, where they completely destroyed the Italian forces in the area, indicating that not only were their influence spreading, because this was in Ethiopia, but also it indicated their growing strength. And in fact, this was one of the contributing uh, short-term triggers towards the acceleration of the campaign and the conquest of Sudan, because in June 1896, if you remember from the previous slides, the Battle of Farkeh took place, and that was the turning point in increasing the drive towards actually conquering the Sudan. Now, you also had the risk of the Mahdists spreading their influence into Egypt. Okay. And obviously they did not want, the British did not want, this pan-Islamic nationalism to merge with Egyptian nationalism, which was under the surface in Egypt and was starting to bubble. Because if you remember, Sir Evelyn Baring's reforms kind of frustrated... Egyptian society at all classes and all levels.
0: So in other words, didn't we have ISIS created in order to bring disruption? It's almost like the Mahdists at the beginning of the 1800s were created by the West in order to segue their way to get trust from the Ottoman Empire so they can infiltrate and dismantle from within. Amplifying and arming the Modest's. So they can create chaos and offer the solution. Cycle, cycle, cycle. Now, coronation. This is where it gets interesting. And we're going to talk about the coronation as the coronation is happening too, because it's quite important. Because when you realize that the Rome is falling, or shall I say London Bridge has fallen, It'll be quite interesting. So, this is from three years ago. I'm not even showing you current footage in respects to the coronation. This is from three years ago. And I'm so glad they, they picked Charles. Because if they went with William, well, we might actually have a problem. But this way, they self-destruct. I mean, isn't that the way it always happens? Corruption always consumes itself
15: and change his mind about being king becoming a king at some point in the future is something that most people only experience in their dreams however for prince william it is a reality born to prince charles and princess diana william is currently second in line to the british throne and will become king after his father knowing for your entire life that you will someday be the ruling monarch of the united kingdom certainly comes with its fair share of pressure after all Just about everything Prince William does is closely watched, and the entire world is very critical of both him and his wife, Kate Middleton. For the past few years, they have had very little privacy, with billions of people tuning in to watch them get married on live television, and millions more watching as they welcomed their three adorable children into the world. At one point in his life, it didn't seem that William was focused on being king. So, why did the Duke of Cambridge? Bridge changed his mind about becoming the ruling monarch. Prince William is a former rescue pilot. It wasn't too long ago that William was employed as a search and rescue pilot. He and Kate resided outside of London, and we didn't see nearly as much of them as we do presently. Although the world was interested in what William did, and there was also an intense interest in Kate, they were not in the royal spotlight as much as they are now. He lost his mother when he was young. At the young age of fifteen. Prince William tragically lost his mother, Princess Diana. The loss affected him greatly, as he was very close to his mom and her death was sudden. Diana was known for spreading compassion and love all over the world. Often called the people's princess, royal fans loved Diana from the time she married Prince Charles and long after their divorce. She was one of the most beloved royals of all time and she made quite an impact on everyone she interacted with. It may be that William feels that he must continue his mother's legacy by serving the people of England and worldwide. William was able to be carefree. As a young adult, William was able to live a carefree life. Even as a future king, he had close friends while away at college in Scotland, which is where he and Kate met. It is only natural that when he was younger, William wasn't thinking much about the fact that he wouldn't one day be the King of England. After all, it seemed so far in the future, and he was more intent on enjoying his freedom. He is now a dad. Becoming a parent changes everything, even for royal family members. William takes his responsibilities much more seriously now that he is the father of three children. He knows that he must set a good example for Princess Charlotte, Prince Louis, and especially for Prince George who will one day be a king himself. Most likely, William wants to appear as responsible and dedicated as possible in the eyes of his kids. William is very much aware of the legacy he wants to leave. William now has a different focus. Now that his life is different, William is focused on becoming king and carrying out his royal duties to the best of his ability. At some point after his marriage to Kate, it seemed that he was ready to fully embrace his royal duties and do whatever he could to prepare for his important future.
0: But he didn't. But he didn't. And I'll leave you with this, which tells you why he didn't. Take a listen.
13: We have the answer. Harry's coming, but Meghan isn't. A coronation compromise. And this is a big decision.
2: It would have been pretty unthinkable um, and almost unknown in history for uh, the second son not to attend the father's coronation. Uh, So it looks like uh, they've managed by hook or by crook to actually uh, come up uh, with a solution.
13: It's a solution that took many months to reach, confirmed in just two short sentences. The Duke of Sussex will attend the coronation service at Westminster Abbey on May the 6th. The Duchess of Sussex will remain in California with Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet. No detail on what made up their minds, but Harry claimed in recent interviews there was a lot to discuss before he decided he'd wanted to sit down and talk with his family. We don't know if that happened, but he was in the UK last month at the High Court for his case against the Daily Mail's publishers. As for Meghan, her absence is significant, but the coronation coincides with Archie's fourth birthday.
15: It shows that there's a willingness to compromise on the part of the uh, the Sussex couple um, and understand the importance of history in that the Royal Dukes are a really important part of the family. Um, But I think it also means that there's very much um, an independence that's in place for Harry and Meghan um, that they're not really gonna compromise on, at least not at present.
13: But at least coming alone, the Duke of Sussex avoids awkward moments and some of the uncomfortable speculation. This is perhaps the outcome the royal family privately hoped for. There were fears the presence of both Sussexes here would have created a media circus distracting and diverting attention away from the coronation the family rift seems far from resolved but for now the king probably just relieved he'll have both sons present for his crowning moment
0: laura bundock sky news well then so that pretty much ends it what you're seeing unfold in south sudan the fact that they claim a ceasefire shows you who the real target of all of this is and i have demonstrated in the past how m- much land, how many territories the United Kingdom, the crown has. And well, it's about time to say that it's done. So what is to happen and what is to come are natural things that happen throughout history. Borders are redrawn, leaders fall, and sometimes you put leaders in place in order for things to tumble. And that applies to the East and the West. And you're seeing the destruction of an empire that has controlled a lot. The Declaration of Independence will be annotated as the 250 years it took to actually get it. Please enjoy this musical interlude. God bless everyone. See you tomorrow.